Hernia Talk Live is a weekly podcast answering your questions about hernias and hernia-related topics using experts in their field. It is not intended to replace personalized medical advice from your physician or surgeon. Support for this podcast comes from the Beverly Hills Hernia Center, your experts in hernia care. Welcome, everyone. Today is another Tuesday on Hernia Talk Tuesday. You're with me live. My name is Dr. Sharin Tofai. Thank you for following me on Facebook at Dr. Tofai, where this is a Facebook Live. And also, of course, on YouTube, many of you will be um, watching it there. Uh, thanks also for those of you that follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Hernia Doc. So today is going to be a fun day. We're going to be talking about radiology. Of course, if you have any other hernia-related questions, you let me know because um, I'm here to answer your questions. You know, all I, I live, eat, breathe hernias, and I'm always so grateful that so many of you log in and have fun with me with this radiology um, topics, I mean, uh, hernia topics. However, uh, I thought we would spend some time on radiology. Now, uh, let me just preface, I am not a radiologist. I am not trained in, officially in radiology. When I was a resident, I really enjoyed radiology. So, and uh, where I trained at UCLA, we were very much uh, encouraged to read our own imaging, even though we're not radiologists, we're sur surgeons. And we had amazing radiologists, Dr. Barbara Cadell, who I believe is still there, was like one of my um, idols there. And uh, she was uh, at that time a very seasoned surgeon. I believe she's still there teaching, but man, she was uh, amazing at reading CAT scans. And if I had a patient that had a CAT scan, I would physically go down to radiology with the imaging. And back then we had these like the actual films and then she would put it up on those, uh, those lighted uh, boxes. And she would read it, but she, she wouldn't just tell you what the answer was. She would kind of show you like, okay, see here, this is what I'm seeing, et cetera. So I learned a lot from her. That's Dr. Barbara Cadell. And uh, she's got a great story. She's, um, uh, she was among the more senior radiologists and actually being a radiologist back then was as a female was not common. And at the same time, she became the strongest and most respected in her department. So that, you know, really strong lady. I really admired that. Um, anyway, in addition, I started doing mostly hernia surgery and we started to learn that MRIs are something that are very useful in the diagnosis of hernias. And I did that because when I came to Cedars-Sinai after about six years out of training, I started to work with a radiologist. Her name is Dr. Rola Sawaf. She's like the head um, MRI specialist at Cedars-Sinai. Uh, and she really taught me how much more information we can get from an MRI as opposed to the typical imaging that we do for hernias, which is ultrasound number one and CAT scan number two. So in most of the world, except for the United States, ultrasound is the dominant imaging modality for hernias, for abdominal wall or for the groin, because it's cheap. It doesn't require any radiation. There's no, like anyone can do it if they know what they're doing with the ultrasound. And um, it's readily available throughout most of the world. In the United States, we tend to do much more CAT scans in general, like not just for hernias, but in general. And doctors, especially ER doctors and surgeons are much more comfortable with a CAT scan and how to read it than ultrasound and MRI. So CAT scans are um, fairly fast to perform. It's like you go in there a um, couple minutes at the most. If there's any preparation for it, that may take some time, but we have a lot of CAT scans in the United States. I mean, in this one mile block, I'm probably, probably like, I'm going to guess, but it's going to be like maybe 30 CAT scans. It's ridiculous. So 
that's the United States bent. Now, CAT scans in general are more expensive. It's like a big machine. You need a technologist to be able to run it. A, usually a radiologist themselves doesn't know how to run it. And then there's a lot of other accessories that go with it. It's expensive. You got to turn on, turn off. It's very um, labor intensive. But over time, it's become very cheap to provide CAT scan service and very rapid. And it gives you so much more information than an ultrasound. Now, you, you may not need the information. And a really good ultrasonographer can possibly recreate that. But in the United States, we've lost the art of ultrasonography in general surgery and really rely heavily on CAT scan. So most surgeons in training and surgeons in practice are very comfortable reading a CAT scan for most things. And so um, if you have a hernia or a bulge or abdominal wall issue, a CAT scan tends to be what gets ordered in the United States. And then when I was working at Cedars-Sinai, initially I met with Dr. Sawoff and she's like, have you considered MRI? And really no one was doing MRIs back then. It was not a common thing. But MRI, the skill of MRI is that, or the, the benefit of it, is that it's really good for soft tissue. So it differentiates the soft tissue differences, muscle, fat, skin. It's not the best for like intestines, which is what most general surgeons are interested in, like gallbladder, liver, pancreas, intestines. It's not considered like first line for most of those. However, for soft tissue, like lipomas, liposarcomas, sarcomas, any tumors of the soft tissue, um, that's why breast is also now doing MRIs, anything that relates to the fat and the muscle, any sports injuries, orthopedic injuries, MRI is really, really helpful because it gives you a lot of detail about the muscle and its surrounding tissues. So people started using MRIs for sports-related problems like athletic pubalgia and sports hernias and so on. And um, Dr. Sawoff was like, well, we should consider developing a protocol for you for hernias. And that's where my MRI hernia protocol came about. And we'll discuss that shortly. But then I started sitting down with it because we didn't really do much MRI education in general surgery residency. And I was very uncomfortable reading MRIs I would kind of understand it, but not really. So I would sit down with Dr. South with every single patient. I'd sit down with her. I didn't just read the report and just believe the report. I would sit down with her and I would say, what about here? What about there? And she would teach me. And I had examined the patient. I knew the patient. I knew exactly what to look for, for the patient. And so I also was able to add to Dr. Sawoff's or the radiologist's education and knowledge base to kind of tell them what we look for in hernias. What do we, I want to know about the mesh. I want to know how it's related to the spermatic cord. I want to see if the mesh is involving the bladder or the vessels in the groin. Um, there's MR neurography where you can look at the nerves and so on. So it was a very nice mutual friendship. And then I got to know other radiologists around my town and they started developing the same MRI hernia protocol, which is now um, throughout most of Los Angeles County. Um, and when I see patients uh, that, that are from out of town, I do encourage them to ask for the MRI hernia protocol, which we have. So again, I'm not a radiologist. I'm not going to be able to give you like this amazing talk about everything you need to know about radiology, but for hernias, I've learned to be really good. And so almost every patient that I see who's had imaging, um, I read it myself. So ultrasound, CT, MRI, I look at the report, but often I rely on my own interpretation. And many of you have questions about that. Like, you know, do the radiologists find everything? And we, we noticed as I was reading my own MRIs and CAT scans and ultrasounds, I noticed that um, like what I saw and what was reported was very different. And what I operate on and what was reported was very different. So we're going to go through that data. I'm going to share with you my own experience. We've published on it. I've written chapters on it. I've given talks. 
and um, you guys don't come to our surgical meetings, so you don't have the the uh, option to to, get, to hear those. And many of you don't read surgical literature, which is actually out there, so you can if you want. It's all on the internet. But I will share with you that data so you have a better understanding of what it means to kind of go through the motions of like hernias and so on. So based on that, let's go through your questions. And uh, I know that you're very interested in this because I got tons of questions for this. I think I got about 20 um, by, through Instagram, herniatalk.com, uh, emailed to me. Um, I'm really, really excited to go through these. So let's go through these one by one. And if you have your own questions, please share. Uh, and we'll start kind of not, not too complicated. We'll get more complicated. <laughs> so very quickly, what imaging should be used in the diagnosis of hernias? Number one, ultrasound. Ultrasound is cheap, readily available throughout the world, and is considered the basic diagnostic imaging for hernias. That's groin hernias in the groin area, the inguinal hernias, as well as abdominal wall hernias. And we're talking like you haven't had surgery yet. So you haven't had surgery yet. You think you may have a hernia. Ultrasound is a great study. Now, is it the perfect study? It's not, but that's where I would start for most people. The next level up is a CAT scan. CAT scan involves radiation. Um, you really shouldn't have more than I think 25 or more CAT scans in your lifetime. Otherwise your risk of cancer can go up. Um, so we're very judicious about the use of CAT scan. That said, CAT scan gives more information than an ultrasound for the abdominal wall. So belly button or any kind of abdominal wall hernias, um, because in addition to showing yes or no for hernias, It'll give me information about what's going on nearby. Is there an abscess? Is there a tumor um, pushing the bowel to go into this hernia? Um, and if there's mesh, sometimes you can get a little bit more information on a CAT scan for the abdominal wall. It'll also show you more information such as a diastasis. Now, ultrasound will show you that too, but often when you ask for a hernia ultrasound, they look at only the specific area, whereas if you do a CAT scan, you're not relying on the person doing the ultrasound to get exactly like what you want. It gives you the full picture. So maybe there's a tumor on the kidney. Maybe there's a, a mass growing like a liposarcoma. All of these will be better identified with a CAT scan because it gives you a bigger picture. Not necessarily a more exact picture, but a bigger picture. For example, I had one patient who had a hernia and I got imaging on him and he had a tumor. He actually had, it was not a hernia. Well, I mean, he had a hernia, but what was growing into the hernia was tumor and not like fat or bowel and et cetera, et cetera. And so that amount of information before planning for surgery was very, very helpful. And instead of me doing the hernia, I sent him to a surgical oncologist colleague of mine and he had the right operation. So a couple of questions are being asked already. Uh, I'm a cancer patient and I have annual PET scans. Are they useful? So yes, some, some again, I'm not a radiologist, but I, I have friends <laughs> that are radiologists. So PET scan is different. PET scan has to do with kind of injecting something in your blood system, which is kind of like glucose-based and it goes to areas of your body that use a lot of glucose and tumor, some tumors use more glucose than others. And so a PET scan can kind of show areas of hyperactivity. Not all tumors show up on PET scan, but it's a nice way to follow uh, up if, for certain uh, tumors. And there's no radiation involved with the PET scan. Then the next question is about nerves. Will they show anything about acne syndrome? So acne is an acronym, A-C-N-E-S. It stands for abdominal cutaneous nerve entrapment syndrome. It's an entrapment of a nerve and those nerves are super narrow and they only get entrapped with certain muscle activities. So no imaging will show you if you have acne syndrome. It is not, it is purely a diagnostic, um, uh, diagno it's a diagnosis that is 
identify based on your story and your examination and maybe injections. Uh, no imaging is uh, helpful for acne syndrome. So we're talking about what images should be used in the diagnosis of hernias. And the, the next tier up is MRI. Now, MRI is not widely available throughout the world. It tends to be available only in kind of, I would say, richer countries. It's very expensive, millions of dollars um, for a machine. You need a highly specialized technician to be able to run the MRI. And it takes forever to get one done. Like it can be 20 minutes, 40 minutes, over an hour, depending on the protocol used. So the benefit is there is no radiation involved with MRI. So for example, if you're pregnant, you know, it's very safe to have an MRI and it's often used instead of a CAT scan for that purpose. The drawback of MRI, it's very difficult to read. It's very complicated. It's like different shades of gray and, and depending on the protocol, it may give you some information, but not all information. So not all MRIs are the same. And then the institutions like uh, the big hospitals and the university-based institutions tend to have the higher level MRIs. It's like HD, <laughs> like 4K. Um, like there were three Tesla or higher, and then the typical outpatient areas, which are not as rich uh, and can't afford to buy the more the higher definition MRIs, tend to have the lower a lower uh, definition MRIs, one and a half Tesla, and all that makes a difference. Reading MRIs is very difficult. Most surgeons are very uncomfortable reading MRIs for hernias. That's just because it's not part of our training. And it's, it is complicated. And so they rely almost 100% on the radiologist interpreting it. And most radiologists are not skilled in reading hernia MRIs, especially if it's related to a complicated situation like mesh and entrapment and things like that. So MRI does give much more information for the inguinal hernias and the groin. In general, for the pelvis, MRI is much better than CAT scan. For the abdominal wall, I tend not to use it. It doesn't really help me that much. It's much better and um, less expensive to uh, get a CAT scan for the abdominal wall. So belly button and, and abdominal wall, as opposed to the pelvis and the groin where MRI is much better. So I hope that kind of clears it up. Basically ultrasound for most people is fine. CT scan for the abdominal wall and then MRI for the pelvis, especially um, if you have a complex, complex situation in the pelvis, like prior surgery or an occult hernia or something no one can figure out. And CT scan's okay for the pelvis, but typically if you already feel a hernia, um, the CT scan just maybe confirms it. it not a good as good it is not as good for occult hernias and i have data to show you for that and i'll go through that shortly and then another question just posed but in the same line is what's the odds of a radiologist missing hernias on either mri or cat scan and i actually looked at that for the groin so inguinal hernias because that's i do a lot of groin hernias and i've tended to see mistakes like the reports did not even mention that they looked for a hernia or if they did they said there was no hernia and it was wrong and we found that up to three-fourths of imaging was incorrect three-fourths the three and a four up to three-fourths of imaging was incorrect in reporting uh the diagnosis of hernias and you know what happens is the patient goes to their doctor they order an ultrasound or a cat scan CAT scan says either no hernia or doesn't mention anything about a hernia in the report. Now the image itself will show it if you look for it, but the report doesn't show it because they weren't looking for it or if they did look for it, they didn't understand what a hernia is. And so that patient is now labeled as no hernia. And now they go through this whole rigmarole of figuring out what their chronic pelvic pain or abdominal wall pain is from. And years go by and the doctors after doctors, neurologists, orthopedic surgeons, pelvic floor specialists, urologists, gynecologists, they all look at the report and say, okay, well, no hernia. So let's figure out what else it can be. 
Whereas if they could read their own imaging, which is what I've learned to do and what I do regularly, you would have caught it. And I, so I've, I've seen that caught in my patients and therefore like save them a lot of time, but it does delay people's care and it's kind of a problem. Um, so I've taken the time to actually go through a bunch of charts and identify exactly where the problems are. We present, we've published our paper twice, two different um, uh, patient populations, occult hernias and non-occult hernias. And then also we presented at the RSNA, the Radiologic Society of North America, which is the largest meeting of radiologists. We actually got a research award because we're there to kind of demonstrate uh, what mesh looks like and what hernias will look like uh, to radiologists because they don't know that at the 3D Max and the ProGrip and there's so many different meshes and mesh repairs, laparoscopic, robotic, open, the PHS mesh, those plug. All they can say is, yeah, it looks like there was a hernia repaired. Whereas I would say, oh, look, see how this plug is impinging on the bladder or it's uh, eroding into the spermatic cord. So or how this plug shouldn't be here. It should be, you know, two centimeters over. So I love it. I love like the whole radiology figuring out, um, it's like puzzle solving, which I, if any of you, <laughs> if any of you are on a hernia attack and have listened to me, you know that I love solving puzzles. And I have as a, since I was a kid. So, um, on that note, if you do have like this mystery illness or can't figure things out and you think it may be related to your abdominal wall or hernia, or it's a complication of a hernia repair, um, I'm happy to review those images for you. You just send me, talk to my office, send me all of those images and your medical records, obviously, but I always ask for a CD or a USB or electronic file of your actual image pictures because I will review that myself and give you kind of my two cents. Now, again, I'm not a radiologist. Don't expect me to find these like necessarily like some random tumors. It's not my specialty, although I have. I have um, diagnosed some patients with tumors that required surgery and um, that was kind of cool. But and it was missed. Like, how did the radiologist miss it? But anyway, um, I'm happy to like be that person to help figure things out for you because I do enjoy it. I'm kind of weird like that. <laughs> All right, another question proposed is, can you see absorbable mesh in imaging? So depends on the imaging. Absorbable mesh can be seen until it's absorbed. So depending on the type of mesh, it takes it between... Mm, several weeks to several years for it to absorb. Uh, and so while it's not yet absorbed, you should be able to see the mesh on imaging. MRI is the best to look for mesh. CAT scan is second best and ultrasound is third best. So I hope that's helpful. All right, let's go through some more questions that were already sent in. So, oh, can you see mesh on imaging? Yes, so you can see it on ultrasound. But it, ultrasound is actually ultrasonic like waves, sound waves. You know, you're familiar with ultrasound done for pregnant belly. Sound waves are sent, and depending on what sound waves are sent back, an image develops. So the mesh actually distorts that sound image and prevents you from seeing much else beyond the mesh. So I personally do not order ultrasound for anyone that already has mesh in them. I don't feel like it gives me that three-dimensional view of what's going on. There are certain centers, I think Cleveland Clinic may be one of them, where they have these highly skilled 3D ultrasound um, radiologists that have a special interest in hernias and do these high-tech, high-definition 3D ultrasounds. Um, that's not available most places, including around me. So I do not rely on ultrasound for any patient that has a mesh in them. CAT scan 
is a difficult one. So CAT scan can show certain meshes. If you have a gore mesh or PTFE-based mesh, like um, the older composites, Kugels or a Kugel patch, those will sprite up. It's like a white line on CT scan. You can see it very well. Most other meshes, including the polypropylene, the polyester, and the different absorbable meshes and biologic meshes are not seen very well on CT scan. Technically, they're seen, but it's like a gray scale, and the muscle is also gray, so it's hard to differentiate between what's muscle and what's mesh. MRI is my favorite study, specifically looking for mesh, especially in the groin, because the fat's white, the mesh is black, the muscle's gray, like you can differentiate one from the other. So that's, um, I tend to err on using CT scan for abdominal wall meshes and MRI for the groin pelvic meshes. Oh, here's a hernia question. Do inguinal hernias in young women in their 20s show up as direct or indirect? Indirect, actually anyone who's young, male or female, the most common hernia is an indirect. Direct hernias are not expected in young people unless they have a collagen disorder like Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. It's typically a weakness of the muscles and therefore most people who have direct hernias tend to be older of age. Next question is, in an ultrasound, can an enlarged lymph node and a one centimeter inguinal hernia be confused? Okay. Typically, no. An enlarged lymph node is very clear. It's round or oval. It has a specific color to it and it doesn't move. Whereas an ingual hernia is either fat or bowel, which is not round, and it moves, goes in and out. And just remember, all hernia ultrasounds should be done is what we call dynamic. So dynamic means there's movement. What I feel happens oftentimes is people are told to lay flat on the bed, this examination bed, like you're pregnant, and they take the ultrasound and they look for a hernia and they can't find a hernia. At the most, they may say push out and that's it. I have a great radiologist that I work with and he loves hernias almost as much as I do. And he does a true dynamic hernia ultrasound. He'll have you sit up, bend forward, stand up, He'll have you cough, move your leg in and out, do lots of things to encourage a small hernia to push out. And he does a really good deep exam. And so based on that, I do feel that if you have a good ultrasonographer, you should not have a mistake between a hernia and a lymph node. Sorry about the delay. They're like doing construction in my building. However, um, I can see a situation where the ultrasound technologist, usually not a radiologist, in the US we have technologists that do this, where the ultrasound technologist will go ahead and like see a bulge like, and then that gets sent over to the radiologist at a different time, they're sitting in their office reading something not in real time and not talking with the patient. And then what happens is what you, um, you understand that or maybe a lymph node, can't really tell. That really shouldn't happen, but it does happen a lot. Okay, so going back to that other question, what is the difference between an indirect and a direct hernia? So almost all, the majority of inguinal hernias in the groin are indirect inguinal hernias. We're only talking about the groin here. Indirect inguinal hernias are the most common in men, they go down the inguinal canal into the scrotum eventually. And in women, there's a bulge in the groin. That's the most common. It's a hole. And through that hole, whatever content goes through, usually fat, sometimes bowel. The direct hernias are not really holes. I mean, there can be, but it's more a bulging or a weakness of the muscle. That's why we see it more in elderly because it's really a weakening of the muscle or a thinning of the muscle. And if you have that in a young age, it's because you have a direct hernia because you actually have a muscle or tissue problem, like a collagen disorder, Ehlers-Danlos syndrome is the most common, 
even though that's rare. All right. Do you guys hear this background with the construction? I'm trying to reduce how much background noise there is, but it's quite a lot. Apologize for that. That's what happens when you're at the office after hours. <laughs> okay, next question. An MRI was ordered for me after a year of pain in the same spot. I was told I have no hernia on the CAT scan. I have diastasis recti. Shall I move forward with surgery or wait for the MRI? Are there any thoughts? So depends on who you trust and if, how good your doctor and radiologist is. Now, if you have diastasis recti and you're planning for surgery and you have a hernia, they'll find the hernia and they'll fix it. So hopefully that shouldn't be a problem. Okay, you just told me that the, the sound's not that bad, but in my ear, it's like really bad. All right, let me know if it's too bad. I can't control the building's construction. Okay, uh, let's see, next question. Do you recommend ultrasound after hernia repair surgery to check the procedure? No, I do not. So I don't recommend checking hernia repairs like regularly, that's not something we do. And uh, whatever imaging shows is not something we tend to respond to. We really respond to how you feel after surgery. That should spark imaging and not vice versa. And I just mentioned when you've had surgery, especially if you've had mesh, ultrasound is not very helpful. And also what's important is if you haven't had mesh, you're gonna have scar tissue regardless. And quite honestly, the scar tissue will also distort the ultrasound. So most people who perform ultrasound are not very comfortable evaluating the groin or the abdominal wall with an ultrasound when there is uh, scar tissue. All right, next question. Um, if a patient has chronic pain and scans have shown thinning of the muscle, should imaging be performed periodically? If so, how often? Again, no. There's very little benefit in routine imaging for hernias. Um, we don't look to see if they get bigger over time because we go by symptoms. We don't evaluate to see if the muscles are getting thinner we go by symptoms. Once the diagnosis is identified, it's often not important to redo imaging. Now, there are exceptions to that, obviously. So if you have an incisional hernia and you have imaging from five years ago and you feel that it's gotten bigger and you're being seen for possible repair, I would want a more updated imaging because I'm going to use that information to plan my surgery. I want to know how wide the hernia is and things like that how your muscles are, how that's changed, or if you've had new surgery. But in general, we don't recommend repeating imaging. Now they do for cancer, they do that for certain lung diseases, but we don't usually recommend serial imaging in patients with the have hernia problems. All right, should we do more questions? <laughs> no, it's, there's like not as much uh, noise in the background. These people are sabotaging my hernia talk. <laughs> if they only knew what was going on on the other side of this wall. All right, guys. Um, let's see. Let's. Jesus. Wow. That's horrible noise. <laughs> what is your hernia protocol for imaging, CT and MRI? Okay, this is good. I'm going to share.
here we go. This is my MRI protocol. Um, you guys can ask for it from the office. I share with all my patients. This is, this is the MRI that I use for all my patients for their her groin hernia. It's a pelvic MRI. It's a non-contrast MRI. So there's no reason to use any contrast. No IV, no oral. You don't eat anything, drink anything, and you don't do any um, injections. And it's a dynamic study. So dynamic means, again, movement. We discussed that earlier. So are you pushing things in and out or not? And it's a very unique protocol because it is dynamic. And many people think that you can't get a dynamic study with an MRI. Totally not true. I do this all the time. Now, it is more labor intensive. So when people have this uh, done, it's like minimum 45 minutes, sometimes hour and a half to get the whole study because it's like three imaging in one. It's a regular MRI pelvis, no contrast. It's an like MRI pelvis with Valsalva, which means a bear down or pushing in view. And then it's an MRI pelvis video. And the video will kind of show small hernias. So if you ask me for this protocol, and I believe it's on, I think I posted it. I believe it's posted on Instagram and Facebook, and I think even Twitter. So it's all of these uh, things, T2 haze, T2 haze with Valsalva, T1, T2, and different types of fat saturations. So what I recommend is this protocol. Some people call it a sports hernia protocol. It's not exactly the same, but it's good enough. The sports hernia protocols tend not to have the Valsalva and the dynamic views. But it's a lot of imaging, but no radiation, but it gives me a lot of information. So if you're out of town and not here to do the MRI protocol with me, I will send this to you. You will take it to your local imaging uh, place, and then they will take that, hopefully, and work with the radiologist and develop the protocol. All right, the next question is hi doctor is a hip degeneration also a symptom of mesh rejection no completely unrelated next question can a scan show issues with the cremasteric muscle after surgery like inflammation uh yes it has to have a lot of inflammation a little bit of inflammation is not going to show up on an mri but inflammation does show up on MRI. So that's why I love it. So you can tell the difference between good inflammation and bad inflammation, scar tissue with no inflammation, abscess with inflammation. They're killing me here. Is this, is this noise like ridiculously loud or what? I may have to end this session early and we'll do it like another day i feel like i can barely even hear myself talking can you guys give me some feedback as to how much noise you're hearing because if it's a lot on your end i'd rather we just do this at a different session maybe finish the rest of it next week give me some um feedback if you would on your on your uh as you're typing it for me i really want to hear Okay, sounds like it's acceptable. All right, if it's acceptable, I'm going to move forward. If it's not, you just let me know. Um, <laughs> oh, you hear me clearly. Okay, all right, I'll move forward. I can barely hear myself. All right, so with regard to a CAT scan, the CAT scan protocol is different. I don't like to use a lot of IV contrast. It is something that is considered legitimate. Most people uh, do not have blood tests and, and some people can get kidney injury because of the um, contrast with the CAT scan. Remember, MRI, you don't need a contrast, but some people like to give uh, contrast for a CAT scan. I do not. The only benefit of contrast for a CAT scan is if you have 
an infection or inflammation that you really want to figure out. So I only give oral contrast. So you have to drink this thing uh, like hour and a half and then immediately before the imaging. And in doing so, the uh, bowel will fill with contrast. And that way, what you can do is identify what's bowel and what's hernia. And if it's all bowel, then in the hernia, I can see that. If there's no bowel in the hernia, I can help differentiate. And I can see the mesh and where the bowel is in relationship to the mesh. And so for CAT scans, I do like to give oral contrast. Um, the other protocol for CAT scans could be to add Valsalva. And one of you had sent me a question, which is, what is Valsalva? It's a bear down. As you're pushing out as if you're having a very intense bowel movement or you want to push your belly out so you look pregnant, that's a Valsalva. And we do that to increase or accentuate the amount of pressure in the abdominal wall. Um, so that's, that's kind of uh, where we are with the CAT scan. So MRI protocol is no contrast. CT scan protocol is with oral contrast usually. Again, sorry for the distracting noise. I have no control over the construction in my building and I'm here after hours um, to help you guys get your questions answered. So thanks for bearing with me. All right, so here was that question about what is a Valsalva? Um, remember, we also talked about ultrasound, hernia ultrasound should be done with bare down views and, and Valsalva. So I prefer almost every imaging to be done with Valsalva, although that's not considered standard. It just gives you much more information. So I do think that bare down views is important. Dynamic study is different. Dynamic is more like a movie, right? They like film things moving as opposed to a bare down view, which is like a one-time shot of imaging with you pushing out. Um, so that's the difference between dynamic and Valsalva or bare down. And then, oh, we, these questions have all been answered. Does oral or IV contrast help with imaging? IV contrast, almost never, unless you have inflammation that you want to look at and infection. And then oral contrast helps with CAT scans, but not with MRI. And with, with ultrasounds, there's no need to do either of those. Here's a great question. Can imaging help identify adhesions? You know, Technically, yes, but practically speaking, no. In other words, MRI and CT scans, if done correctly, and you have a highly skilled radiologist, they can interpret part of it of like if there's adhesions or not, especially with Valsalva. Um, MRI enterography is one where they can look for adhesions. However, and with ultrasound, maybe it's typically not something that's identified. You really have to have a close relationship with your radiologist as a surgeon to, um, to see if they can kind of interpret that. But uh, technically, yes, they can identify it. All right, let's go to the next question. I have intense right groin and right testicle pain. Will a urologist be there for the surgery? No. Well, assuming that general surgeon is doing the hernia repair. So if the groin pain and the testicle pain are due to a hernia, then typically the hernia surgeon will do the repair and a urologist will not be there. If there's a need for a urologist, they may ask the urologist to be there, especially if they find a urologic reason for the pain. And if you want more, go to my videos where I discussed testicular pain and male urological problems with Dr. Paul Turek and Dr. Human. Both of them are kind of male um, fertility specialists. And we had a whole session about that uh, on hernia talk. So go to that. You can see it all on YouTube. YouTube. All right, next question. Uh, let's see. <laughs> this is so funny. I, I just have to laugh. Um, what's the appearance of the spermatic cord lipoma on MRI? So it looks like fat. And most spermatic cord lipomas 
are really not spermatic cord lipomas. They are preperitoneal fat that follows the spermatic cord separate from the spermatic cord. So if you see the fat near the spermatic cord, also alongside the cord and then continuous with the preperitoneal fat, then that's what we call the cord lipoma. It's kind of a misnomer. Rarely, but it happens. You can have a separate lipoma distinct from the preperitoneal fat that's in the groin. And if it is, sometimes that's a cancer, like a liposarcoma and not a tr uh, true hernia-related problem. And yes, that's how you identify uh, direct or indirect hernias is based on anatomy. The epigastric vessels are what are the borders of a direct or versus an indirect hernia. A fatty cord has very different looking fat than spermatic cord lipoma, much more vascular. And that's how you can tell what's a fatty cord and what's a lipoma. Um, so... It's, these are subtle things in private imaging, but, you know, uh, things that I may look for, especially in the certain patient, but almost never are these things identified as part of your um, typical imaging. Uh, what's the appearance on MRI of various sports hernia injuries? Okay, I'm not a radiologist, so I'm not going to answer this question the way you would probably want, which is very detailed. But just know that you can tell where inflammation is very much better with MRI than any other imaging. And that also you can, there may be even fluid collections um, because of uh, sports injuries. Yeah, I hope you go to your YouTube. There's, we had some really good sessions with the urologists. Okay, next question. Um, is gadolinium enhancement useful for diagnosing athletic pubology inflammation? No, we don't use gadolinium for much except like the brain tumors. Um, and it's almost never useful. Okay, I wanted to share a screen with, with you guys towards the end of this talk on, um, where is it? Here it is. This is my first paper talking about aging and occult hernias versus non-occult hernias. This was published, I think, 2014. There you go in JAMA surgery, it used to be called archives of surgery. And here's some answers to some of the questions. We looked at 76 patients and they had ultrasound, CT and MRIs. And we looked to see how useful these were to identify hernias, inguinal hernias. And what we found was ultrasound had 56% sensitivity. And I'm just going to tell you the difference. Let's look here, which is a predictive value. What's the predictive value of a positive test? What's the predictive value of a negative test? So for an ultrasound, the positive predictive value is 100%. In other words, if you get an ultrasound and it tells you you have a hernia, 100% of the time, you will have a hernia. It's correct study. However, if you have an ultrasound, and it doesn't show hernia, that absolutely does not mean you don't have a hernia and you should move on to the next test. All right, next one, CT scan. These are all people with, these are all people that have a hernia. CT scan, if you have a CT scan which shows a hernia, 96% of the time, the positive predictive value is correct. In other words, that was a correctly identified study. But if you have no finding of a hernia on CT scan, that may be true only 4% of the time. The majority of the time when it's negative, it's really not negative. And then you have to go to an MRI. And an MRI, if an MRI says you have a hernia, this is the radiology report, then 97% of the time, that is a correct answer. And if it says you don't have a hernia, so it's a negative study, the predictive value of that negative study being correctly negative is 79%. So as you can see, the sensitivity and specificity of an MRI for inguinal hernias is super high, 91% and 92%.
And that's why if you order ultrasound and it's negative, don't stop there. Get a CT scan. If that's negative, then get an MRI. If they're all negative, then the likelihood is you don't have a hernia. But then here's the, the next step is what about occult hernias? So those patients, we carved out the occult hernias to see where the occult hernias are um, important to identify. And what we found was it's even worse with occult hernias. So again, if an ultrasound shows an occult hernia is identified, believe it, you're done. But don't believe it if it's a negative study. If you get a CAT scan, 86% of the time, it will, it will correctly identify a hernia. Whereas only 6% of the time will it correctly say there's no hernia. So then look at these numbers. For MRI, completely different. The positive predictive value for an MRI is super high, 95%, and 85% for negative predictive value. So if you get MRI and it shows a hernia, 95% of the time, they will be correct. And if it shows no hernia, 85% of the time, that will be correct. So that's why the sensitivity and specificity of an MRI for ingual hernia is 91% and 92%. Sorry, for occult ingual hernias. And this takes me to one of the questions which was submitted earlier, which is this, and it's a great, great question. And that is, um, where's the question? Here it is, here's a great question. And basically it's this, it says, I went to two different places and got two different ultrasounds. One found a hernia, one didn't. Which one do I believe? What do we just say? If an ultrasound shows a hernia, believe it. There's no reason to not believe that ultrasound shows a hernia. It's 100% positive predictive value, at least in the patients that I've treated. And so you don't need to redo or not believe the ultrasound when it's positive. Positive predictive value is 100%. However, the negative predictive value is 0%. So about half the time it's going to be incorrect. And that's kind of an important detail. Uh, about hernias, angle hernias. And so you can, you can read this paper of mine. It's, it's very detailed and kind of shows you that if you have a clinical suspicion of a hernia that, um, you know, based on your symptoms and the examination, um, if the examination confirms a hernia, just get it repaired if that's what you prefer or get an ultrasound and then uh, to confirm it and then get it repaired. But if you have a non-diagnostic study, um, sorry, exam, and you may or may not have a hernia, then I tend to go straight to MRI, but you can get an ultrasound or CT scan. If that is, shows a hernia, go ahead and get it repaired. If it doesn't show a hernia, then you have to go get the MRI. And that's kind of what I use um, to kind of the algorithm that I use based on imaging. I want to tell you, we kind of did a snarky uh, study. <laughs> um, we did it with our radiologist. So it's not like uh, I'm being mean to radiologists. Every one of these papers that I've published, I've done alongside radiologists. But we actually looked at, we looked at what happens when you compare the radiologic studies, uh, the report of the radiologist versus like my radiologist who's, who's, you know, I'm considered very skilled versus the surgeon who's in the OR looking at image at the hernia. So these are all patients that already have hernias. I took them to surgery. I confirmed the hernia and I fixed it. Or maybe I found no hernia, but usually I, I find the hernia. That is like, you can't get more exact than that. Then we went backwards and we took those images uh, from those patients and looked to see what the radiologist report said. And then we also had our own radiologist without knowing anything about the patient, blinded, review the same imaging. So this was published uh, a couple of years later, 2018. And we, uh, there's some nice pictures in it, but here's a cool, cool uh, information. So what we showed was uh, 
the skilled radiologist that understands um, hernias, understands mesh, understands what a hernia will look like, even if it's super small and it's more likely to identify it, does better than your average radiologist that's reading everything. And so what this table shows is that, especially in these occult smaller hernias, that a, that a specialty radiologist is more likely to identify the hernia than, uh, than a non-specialist. So here you are like 71% versus 26% for um, so, uh, all, all imaging. And looking at CAT scan, it's 74% are correct versus 24% for a typical radiologist. And then for MRI, it's 65% are correct versus 30% for a non-specialist radiologist. So that was very eye-opening. I kind of knew it, but you know, it was nice to look at the data and get actual details. And then what we did was we also looked at um, comparing like how often were they both correct or both incorrect. And, you know, it basically shows that um, the, the specialty radiologist is almost always better at, uh, at kind of reading these than the non-specialist. So this is another paper of mine you can read if you wish. Um, it's, it's a little bit technical, but the conclusion is that most radiologists, uh, most radiologic reports for CT and MRI are incorrect for evaluation of occult hernias. And the specialty radiologist reports are at least twice as much accurate when evaluating the same images and that a physician who is relying on reports alone is inadequately addressing the needs of the patient. So if you have a patient with a good story for groin and pelvic pain due to a hernia and you do a radiologic study that's negative, this is my take-home message to you guys. If it's a negative study, but your exam and or your history is consistent with a hernia, don't believe the study. Move on to a much more, um, much more kind of exact study. And really, that was the take-home message. And I hope that that was helpful for you guys. Um, I didn't want to get too technical with radiology. It's often over the head of a lot of people. Um, Oh, here's a question. Doctor, I'm a medically uneducated elderly man with undiagnosed and diagnosed bilateral ingle hernias. How do I question a medical specialist on their protocol or diagnosis? Good question. I do understand that there's a little bit of hesitancy to question your doctor or seek help. So I publish this stuff. You can share it with your doctors. Um, if you feel you're not able to discuss very frankly with your doctor, find another doctor. If you're in the United States, I always say this, we have, we don't have socialized medicine. It's a private and public system. So please go ahead and find another doctor. I'm happy to, to help you through that process. You can contact my office and, and um, I can work with you. I can even work with your own surgeon, give you some guidance, but feel free to show them literature or even ask them. And if you feel like your doctor is very open to fielding questions, great. If you feel like your doctor's kind of not very happy about that, then honestly, I would see find a doctor that's maybe a better fit for you. And that's kind of um, where I am in terms of my thoughts about, I feel very strongly that you should have a doctor that, that meets your needs. And that includes being able to answer all your questions for you. I'm going to end with one last question which I get asked a lot, and I'm just gonna give you my philosophy about what I think about this, and then we'll end this. I need surgery, but I have no insurance. What are my options? All right, first of all, having no insurance doesn't mean you, you can't get care. You can pay cash for it. There's a lot of people that have cash and they have savings, and they get their care that way. Insurance is not necessary in order to get care. Second of all, if you don't have the cash or resources to pay for your care, and you'd be surprised, it's actually not as expensive as you think, then there are public avenues in the United States and elsewhere for you to get care. 
So go to your local county or public facility. And I recommend you go to one that's affiliated with a university because they tend to have more specialists available to you than um, the average kind of county facility. So I hope this was all very helpful for you. Um, thank you for everyone who tolerated the construction. Uh, that was crazy. I didn't like that. Kind of interrupted me. And um, I wish I had my any powers to stop them and have them not work, but work needs to be done. So thanks everyone for joining me. It's another Herney Talk Tuesday. Come back next week. I have some great guests lined up for you. Uh, make sure you watch this and share it on YouTube from my YouTube channel. Uh, thanks to everyone who watched and asked their questions on Facebook Live and on Zoom. Um, I'll post everything on Twitter and Instagram as well at Herney Doc. And on that note, good night. Sorry about all the noise. <laughs> we will see each other next week on Tuesday. That concludes another fact-filled episode of Hernia Talk Live, the only weekly podcast that helps answer your hernia-related questions. Today's program was produced by Dr. Sheeran Tofai. For more details about today's episode, look at our show notes. Remember to follow Hernia Talk Live on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen, and please give us a five-star review. It really helps us spread the word that it's not just a hernia. See you next week for another great episode. Thank you.